You're listening to the Wednesday, December 3rd, 2014 edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks. And this is Eugene Hernandez. You can now find The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment. We also invite your comments and questions on Twitter. Follow us at Filmlink, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C. Today's episode features young filmmaker Damien Chazelle, who made quite an impression at the 52nd New York Film Festival this fall. His latest, Whiplash, is a pedagogical thriller and emotional S&M two-hander that is brilliantly acted by J.K. Simmons and Miles Teller. In the film, Simmons plays a music instructor whose teaching method is tantamount to terrorizing his students. Teller plays an ambitious drummer who falls prey to his teacher and faces the brunt of his outbursts and psychological warfare. At Sundance, where it won both the Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award, it was dubbed, quote, Full Metal Jacket at Juilliard. Whiplash was actually developed from a short film of the same name that played at last year's New York Film Festival. The blood on the drum kit battle between student and teacher and the dazzling filmmaking keeps your pulse rate elevated from the very beginning to its electrifying conclusion. Chazelle sat down with Amy Taubin during the New York Film Festival to talk about Whiplash, his own roots as an aspiring drummer, and the short film that paved the way for his current triumph, which is now in theaters. Let's listen in. Usually we begin this with a career overview, but you've only made two features and a couple of shorts. Um, One short. One short. So, I don't know. um, A general question, both of your features and your short, Uh, which was here last year, um, are musicals. So, um, and I hear you're planning a third feature musical. Um, What is it about the musical form that particularly attracts you? And, um, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I... There's obvious, I mean, there's certain obvious personal things as a, I played drums when I was younger, and um, so music was a big part of my life sort of early on, but, you know, growing up, I actually hated musicals, um, and, and I think I was more of a kind of, you know, without knowing it, I was more of a classicist in terms of storytelling and didn't like the interruption that musical numbers seemed to, seemed to present, um, and it was only you know, it was actually only through kind of getting more interested in more out there forms, avant-garde forms, that the musical suddenly seemed like such a wonderful genre to me. Um, just the sheer audacity of being willing to, to be, being willing to, whether, whether you're breaking the diegesis or not, to kind of, uh, to segue a narrative into something that, you know, might seem to be a stop in the narrative, but could actually be, you know, advancing it in an angular sort of way, that that kind of storytelling seemed really, um, seemed suddenly very exciting to me. And suddenly Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies seemed like the best experimental movies ever made, you know? And so, so that's how I initially kind of got into it. Um, it was very much a kind of film student's sort of idea of what the musical was, and that it certainly informed my first, my first movie, which was a film student's idea of a musical. And, um, 
and and here you know I, I uh, this started less as as a genre piece for me it was more just going back to kind of personal basics of uh, and what seemed like again a more classical kind of story about uh, experiences I'd had as a drummer um, but the same you know you adopt the same sort of rules at the end of the day there is I agree that there is kind of you know a, a way in which this can be seen as a as a musical in the sense that it was all about kind of building up to you know building up the drama in a certain traditional way and then exploding it into into music and music can just take over from words in such an elegant way that just buys you a lot and um, and it's more interesting to me to kind of find ways to resolve storytelling beats without words and through through other forms, whether it's just images or just music. Um, so I knew that, you know, I knew I wanted to make a movie that would end with, you know, more or less 15, 20 minutes of nothing but music. Um, and, uh, and then I worked backwards from there. Um, you know, maybe we should go back a little bit to Guy and Madeline on a park bench, which was the musical that you made when you were still at Harvard and in whatever kind of extremely productive film department they have, which really kind of doesn't exist, except it does and has produced really wonderful, wonderful filmmakers. That was um, a 16 millimeter black and white film and made for next to nothing um, using people who hadn't acted very much and one wonderful jazz player who is very charismatic. And then you went off to California. And when I heard you were going to California, I kind of got very, very nervous because I love Guy and Madeline. I love it dearly. And I thought, this is the end, you know? <laughs> What are they going to do to him out there? And lo and behold, you made this absolutely great film. Why did you want to go to California to work? What did it give you to go there? Um, you know, I grew up near here. I grew up in Jersey, and I felt like, I don't know, I, you know, growing up in Jersey, going to school in Boston, uh, I needed a break from the East Coast, and um, and I thought that, I thought that I would stay in LA for maybe a year and then come back, that I just had to at least sort of see what it was like. Um, you know, LA's not as bad as you, as you make it out to be. The, the uh, you know, you find your place there. I, I, I find LA kind of romantic, actually. I find it, um, you know, it's, it's, as a movie junkie, it's a movie, it's a city that was built by the movies and, um, and, so there's something really kind of weird and surreal about it that I find sort of energizing. Um, I, you know, that said, it's it's in your in your very sort of generous narrative, you're you're skipping over some some stops that I would you know rather forget of my time in L.A. You know, largely spent doing some you know writing for higher work on on uh, things I won't name and. Uh, and you know, just just uh, uh, trying to kind of make ends meet within within the industry. I mean, Guy Madeline was was not exactly a uh, a door opener in Hollywood. Um, actually, it was a door closer, pretty much. And and um, the only door it opened from an industrial industry standpoint for me was 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 I met my manager through it, um, who for whatever reason thought that 
you know, not only did he like the film, but he was the one person who thought maybe, you know, at some point one day he could, he could make a buck off me. And, um, and he sort of stuck with me through thick and thin, through the sort of trenches of doing the kind of, the sort of thankless LA writer's life um, while I was trying, you know, secretly, more or less secretly, to put together stuff that was personal for me, stuff that I would write for myself to direct, um, stuff that I would somehow convince people to let me direct. Um, so Whiplash was written a little bit out of frustration after a few years of, of uh, those directing projects going nowhere. Um, a little bit out of pragmatism, the idea of, you know, can I write something that's small and contained enough, takes place in a few rooms, um, is about a world I know intimately, um, won't require a lot of research on my part or anything. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, um, it's something I know, something I haven't seen before, something I can do for a price, um, and something that I could convince people that I'm the one who should direct it because it's my life. Um, and even that wasn't enough to, you know, even then we still, we did, the short you referred to was, uh, was, was a short I never intended on making, actually. It was purely designed as a proof of concept for Whiplash. It was a scene that we took from the script to convince financiers that, that this movie was makeable and that I would be the one to make it. Um, so the real kind of change and, you know, the tide of events and the sort of, um, um, the sort of the sort of turn in the road really was that short, and that short helped actually finally make this idea of the feature real. It fi finally, um, um, people in Hollywood finally sort of the irony is that many more people in Hollywood saw the short than ever saw a guy, the feature, Guy Madeline, and um, and that led to being able to actually do the feature, uh, th this feature, and um, and you know, but it's only it's only very recently that. I'm able to have any currency at all in Hollywood as a director, as opposed to as a you know rewriter of uh, you know alien invasion you know uh, movies. So, um, so that's a you know that you could argue is very part and parcel of the evils of LA. But um, but you learn from it, I think, and uh, and from a, cra a more crass point of view, it is true that that Whiplash is what it is. I think in large part because I'd been writing thriller specs and things like that for hire for about four years before then. That is to say that I don't think I could have made Whiplash right after a guy in Madeline. I think I needed, to, uh, I needed to turn that part of my brain off for a few years and then turn it back on, re-energized, re-filled you know, back up with the kind of anger and pent up frustration you feel as a student um, where you just want to say something and you feel like no one's listening to you. Um, so things happen for a reason, I think. Um, but you did, even though you were on a pretty low level on the West Coast, you did convince uh, J.K. Simmons to be in the short film and then to continue into the feature and uh, Miles Teller, who is beyond being a rising star at this point, he is a star, uh, to be in Whiplash, and they're both extraordinary. Um, but that took some doing, and you 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 get lucky, and and in that sense, again, I probably can thank my my you know the writer's life that I just complained about. Um, I met a few people through through writing that um, you know I'll, this is how this is how LA works. I went up to pitch for um, 
you know Ouija, like the the the, the board Ouija board. So they, you know, in its infinite wisdom, Hollywood decided to do a, mo- a Ouija movie, and um, and so I went up to, uh, in my infinite wisdom, I decided that'd be a great movie for me to do. So I so I um, I went up to pitch for it. It would be. <laughs> I went up to pitch for it, uh, not as a director, of course, just as a writer, um, and because uh, they would never let me direct it, and and so I I spent months developing this, you know, really involved. Um, pages and pages of this involved plot breakdown of how, how I would do a Ouija movie. And, um, and I went in and pitched on it, and uh, I think it was to Universal and, and a few production companies, and they all hated it and, um, and passed, and that was it. But the one exec who was in, in the circle of production companies who had kind of initially thought of me for it and had helped me nurture the pitch a little bit and was kind of my one champion there was this guy, Cooper Samuelson, um, who I'd met when he was producing, uh, co-producing James Gray's movies. And um, so, you know, we, we went from me sort of, you know, worshiping at the altar of, of, of James Gray, who I think is one of the greatest living filmmakers, um, to, to, uh, to meeting again in, the con- in a very different cinematic context. And, and he, you know, so that seemed like a loss, and okay, I'm going to move on from this waste of a few months and a few, you know, brain cells spent on this project that went nowhere. And about a year later, he was the first person I sent, um, or sorry, not the first person, he was one of the people I sent Whiplash to, the script. Uh, and he was the only person who saw anything in it, who thought maybe, maybe he could actually, everyone else in town passed. And he was the one person who said, let me, let me see what I can do about this. And he was friends with Jason Reitman's producer, Helen Estabrook, gave them the script. Jason Reitman knows J.K. Simmons. Jason Reitman convinced J.K. Simmons to do it, and then we were off to the races. So um, it's not to say that you know you, I couldn't have wound up in the same place, you know, in another in another iteration. But it is funny that you know Ouija paved the way for <laughs> for this. Um, another question that I wanted to ask you was. You know, at Sundance, where it won the Audience Award and the Grand Prize, and I actually was at the award ceremony, and I thought after Damien won the Audience Award, I thought he would really get really upset because it's very rare that people win the Audience Award and the Grand Prize, and he never would have settled for the Audience Award. It would have made him crazy. You you know me too well. So um, (laughs) I was really pleased that you won the Grand Prize as well. But it was an issue that came up immediately. People said, oh, this would be an immensely successful big movie if only it wasn't jazz. You know, that jazz is in our culture, a fairly rarefied thing. And the fact that you stuck to keeping it a jazz movie, how did you do that? I mean, you must have gotten a lot of pressure. Why can't he be a rock drummer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and I also got a lot of why, you know, to be honest, why does it have to be J.K. Simmons, you know? Um, J.K. Simmons is a legendary character actor, but he means... Uh, at least at the time that we were financing the movie, it, he doesn't mean much uh, in this strange world of foreign sales that uh, dictates a lot of what indie movies of kind of plus two million dollars uh, get made uh, in America today. 
Um, it's, it's based on who, who they can actually sell territories to. So, you know, there was a whole list of actors that I was recommended to. Um, um, and I was told point blank, actually, very early on that, um, that if you want J.K. Simmons in this role, you'll, you'll never get more than 500000 to do it. So you should make a choice right now. Either you can do this movie with J.K. Simmons and $500,000, or you can do it for what we've budgeted you probably actually need, which is about two to three million. Um, but it needs to be, you need to try to get Kevin Spacey or Jeff Daniels or, or, or uh, any, any, you know, whoever. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you kind of brace yourself for a fight, but then I, I wound up actually having to fight that fight less than I guess I would have expected to. And I think it's because when you have someone like someone, you, you're just lucky to have uh, a kind of patron. And that's what, that's what Jason Reitman really became for me. Um, someone who people, you know, like and trust in Hollywood who, um, who, they could kind of, he was the one person who was probably capable of convincing people that this sort of newbie director with a jazz drummer movie with J.K. Simmons should be made for $3 million. And uh, there's probably very few people in Hollywood who would be capable of pulling that magic act. Um, and so that's where, you know, Guy Madeline was the kind of movie that, you know, I was pounding on a lot of doors myself. Here, it was actually a comparatively luxurious circumstance to have much better door pounders at my, at my disposal. Um, and, and so I wound up making exactly the movie I wanted to make. Um, and when it came to script and, and editing, um, we couldn't, no one for $3 million would give me final cut, but they could give Jason Reitman final cut. And Jason Reitman, you know, we discussed and said, and J the, the idea was privately, the financiers didn't need to know this, but Reitman would just back up my final cut. So essentially, I had Final Cut, um, which is unheard of, uh, you know. And so, so I had this remarkably spoiled kind of experience making exactly the movie I wanted to make with exactly the people I wanted to make about exactly the subject, no matter how rarefied that I wanted it to be. But I really, at the end of the day, can't really take too much credit for that on my own. It really, the credit is having the, the good luck of, 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 coming into the orbit of people who are willing to take, to, to take that sort of stand, take that kind of gamble, and, you know, just back you up. Okay. The, the word on the street, or backstage at Tully, uh, was that you are the next Martin Scorsese. And um, <laughs> no kidding, the union guys backstage at Tully were all crowding around me and saying, that guy, he's the next Martin Scorsese. But the reason I'm bringing it up, besides it's a nice thing to say about Damien, is it seems to me there is a lot of Scorsese in this movie, and I wondered what your relationship to that was. I mean, do you have directors that you, you know, look at really carefully and take things from? Yeah, it's... it's uh yeah, it's funny how much compliments you can get by thoroughly ripping a director off. It's, it's, um, I, I, I'm, I've always been a big believer, and to me, Scorsese is the great example of this, that it's okay to rip off, that, that you know, that you, you got to rip it off, though. You can't just borrow. You can't just, uh, you can't just try different clothes on. 
um, it's fine to plunder people's houses, but but steal it for yourself and steal it. Don't 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 give it back. You know. And I think that uh, I think that's what Scorsese, you know, shamelessly does in his movies, and it's what makes them amazing. Um, there's such a love of cinema in those movies, and that at least is certainly I came to movies through a love of movies. Um, so the movie buff in me informs informs the movies that I want to pillage from. Um, but that kind of movie making as cinephilia, I guess, is 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 just sort of, you know, again, that's a, that's a product of how I kind of view movies, and I think it's it's a, it's the way I like to make movies. Um, it was certainly the same sort of attitude I brought I brought to bear in Guy Madeline, which was just a compendium of my favorite, you know, musicals and French New Wave movies and Cassavetti's movies all rolled up into one, and 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 you know, um, I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people sometimes have a problem with that kind of approach to filmmaking, that it seems like a film student's approach, or it seems like a, you know, and, and Scorsese early in his career, he's not, he's not the only one to have sort of gotten flack for, for, uh, for, for that kind of approach. But, you know, the, the whole idea of originality in art, I think, is really sort of overrated. I think it's a, uh, it's a kind of a post-19th century idea. And, um, and to me, the great, you know, the greatest art is, and actually, jazz is a great example of this. It's 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 taking pre-existing art and and adding your spin to it. It's updating it, um, and you know, everything we think of as jazz today is the American songbook updated with uh, with the African American tradition. And um, so, you know, it, I think that that I guess I guess it's a long way of saying I shamelessly kind of steal from the movies I love. Certainly, my editor and I, when editing this movie, uh, had *Raging Bull* on a loop, and uh, and um, <laughs> and you know, and and it, I, I, to me, it's it, it's sort of that's probably not a surprise given the given the style of it. But but I think you know, I, so I think it's it's uh, as long as you're trying in some way to to make it your own, um, not that you necessarily succeed. I that's the way I like to make movies. Um, absolutely, there's always the risk that you fall into a crevice where you don't kind of have a voice of your own. Um, I hope that as I continue to make films that that maybe I will, you know, gain more confidence in or sort of more of an idea of what my voice is beyond the movies that I love. But um, but at least I've grown kind of content with the idea that that at least knowing the movies you love and having a specific barometer of taste going into making something at least already gives you some kind of a person pers personality some kind of a personal element in your cinema and and then maybe that's enough yeah and also at least in this movie in whiplash that is your story so as someone said no one but you could have made that movie in the end so that's the core of it and then you can yeah yeah and and uh and also, I guess jumping off of that, I mean, it's it's also since I was a little kid, I kind of I was a very you know over dramatic little kid, and and uh, and you know my parents would often complain that I sort of would would uh, treat everything as though it were a movie, and uh, and and so as a drummer, yeah, it felt like I was in a Scorsese movie, or it felt like I was in Full Metal Jacket, or it felt like you know you sort of keep on, come up with these grandiloquent grand, movie comparisons for what what best approximates your life at that moment. Um, but, you know, there's no one better than Scorsese at capturing, um, the kind of mad adrenaline rush of, you know, of, of, uh, well, just that period, it, what it is to have a mad adrenaline rush. There's no, he's the greatest, 
um, filmmaker in the world to have ever captured that. And um, so, so the, you know, that it just kind of stems very much again personally from what, what, are the, what are the directors and what are the films that sort of best correspond to what it felt like for me to be in the shoes when, when these things were happening to me. We should throw this open to you guys. There are mics. Wait till you get a mic, but raise your hand in the middle here. Uh, the movie has a distinct look that I haven't seen before with, um, with the color tones of when, the, when he's in the band. Uh, it's always, it always seemed to be either blue or a yellow color tone. Was that, were you, did that come more in the script or once you got together with your DP and lighting, et cetera, because it's beautiful and just oh, added a real boom. Um, it was a combination of, a lot of it was practical um, considerations. We, you know, I, I'm, I prefer shooting on film. Um, I shot my first movie on film. I'm, you know, knock on wood, shooting the next movie on film. Um, well, you know, knock, I, I knocked on wood, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see how far that gets me. The, um, here, it became pretty clear early on that because I wanted to shoot this in a certain style that was going to require a lot of setups um, and a lot of, you know, pro probably multiple cameras, uh, we had to shoot digitally. So 90% um, of digital photography I really sort of hate. So, I, you know, it quickly kind of reduced down to the color palettes that I personally, it's a, totally a personal taste thing that I liked in digital. And um, I like the... Uh, I like those two palettes in digital. I guess I like digital going blue. The Alexa we shot on the Alexa, which tends to go blue and and uh, depending on the lens. And then I like the I like the uh, um, I also find that digital can work very well when you sort of if you're in a windowless environment, you create it. You, you kind of pick a single color scheme and stick to it completely. And you know it's why the best digital filmmakers, whether it's Fincher or Soderbergh, they're they're Fincher's movies are all yellow, you know, and it's like or all green and and uh, that's what makes them look good, to my opinion. Uh, in my opinion, so so the the uh, so it was more kind of matter of like let's make sure we have spaces that will fit this kind of very restricted color palette, um, and then from there I sort of worked out you know what I wanted to, it to look like from there, and then it kind of became obvious that you know okay well, jazz. Uh, Jazz, I often think of jazz as, you know, black and white photography, but this was going to be color, so, um, so there's something about the burnished wood of some of the old jazz recording studios, so let's kind of stem it from there. And then the wood told us, okay, we can kind of ride the palette from yellow to red, and, and, and then it just became a matter with the DP of making sure that we wouldn't get too bored of that, that so much of the movie lives in that one key rehearsal room, that we had to find ways to vary it up. So. Um, so he varied up the lighting. He would add, you know, for one s sequence there, he added kind of lights on the music stands, so they would add little pockets of light and then dark the re darken the rest of it. Um, as the stuff gets more and more screwed up in the in the room, we went redder and redder, you know. Um, so it's pretty obvious, like it's, it, it's certainly kind of obvious kind of color to emotion correlations, but the but the uh, but it was all about just making sure that a it looks good on digital and b that we don't get bored of a of a very restricted space. This is going to sound weird, but um, watching your film, I've seen it a couple of times now, um, I kept thinking of Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwyck, the kind of roles that they would play in those 30s and 40s movies. For Simmons' character, they, were, they, they weren't afraid to be mean. They weren't afraid to be strong. 
they weren't uh, those kind of RKO movies that mm. America made so well in that period. And as Joseph Mankiewicz is being his films are being shown here. So it was weird. The, the, the last time I saw it, the other night, I came home and I started thinking about what is a male character in film today, American film, that has that kind of intensity that's not truly evil, you know? And I went to those other places. I wanted to ask you a question about the editing. Uh, that last sequence between the music and the and the way it was edited, I believe you you edited it yourself, or you? Oh uh, no, no, oh. no. I, well, you I were in the editing room. <laughs> you you were in the editing room, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It just it it just worked so perfectly, and how you, um, with the experiences that you've had, were able to deliver that long sequence without it becoming boring. And for me, it really held all the conflict of the movie in, those, in the expression of the music. Yeah, I, um, I had a very good, uh, a very good editor um, who I hope to you know, make every subsequent movie with. Um, um, editing is certainly a part of the process that I just adore. Um, I like the quiet. I like being in the dark room and just having the images and playing with them. Um, and this movie, I mean, I sort of wanted it to be an editor's dream movie. You know, it's just, uh, um, um, normally, you know, editors, uh, obviously editing is, you know, is the, you know, referred to as an invisible art form. The, the cases where it can be visible or is allowed to be visible usually are action movies or war movies or kind of, you know, things with traditional, action set pieces. Um, so we, we, my editor and I talked a lot from, right from the beginning about how we wanted to make a movie with set pieces. Um, um, and there's not that many small, you know, kind of movies of this budget range that have what you'd really consider set pieces. Um, so the key was how can we, how can we make these sort of stuff that feel as intense and visceral as a war movie or as an action movie that would invariably cost a lot more um, but within this much smaller and ostensibly lower stakes environment. Um, so the music dictated a lot of it. The music came first, so the music has a certain tempo to it, and it was about the cutting, kind of keeping up with the music. Um, and then it also, I remember the first version we did of the last scene, we, we, we paid a lot of attention to where the notes would be for every instrument and every, you know, where the cuts would be, sorry, for every instrument. And we put it together, and as a piece of kind of just raw editing and imagery, it worked very well. But it was kind of like a music video. It didn't, didn't really have a heart. And it was because we hadn't paid enough attention to JK and, Sim and, JK and Miles's eyes, really, and them looking at each other. Um, so we wound up kind of recalibrating the sequence to just them looking at each other, and which posed a lot of problems because um, I had screwed up a lot of the shooting of the sequence actually when it came to them looking at each other. I had, we had, I still don't know how I did this, but um, every single sequence in the, in the, in the, in the, in every single moment in that sequence where they're supposed to make eye contact, they were on the wrong side of the line. Um, so, so, so we never had a, that moment that you need of his eyes looking left and Miles's eyes looking right. So we did a lot of, a lot of flopping a lot of just swapping the images. Um, and then when that wouldn't work, sometimes that works, other times it just makes people look really bizarre. And uh, so when it wouldn't work, we did a lot of split screening. We did a lot of kind of moving, um, you know, taking the stage and moving. JK was over here, we'd blot him out, 
and then we would take JK from another scene and kind of put him in the stage there. And we did all this sort of stuff just to kind of recalibrate where the people would be, just to kind of get those looks. And it was a nightmare doing it, but as soon as we did it, then the scene suddenly breathed. And then, and then, um, and then the rest was kind of just perfecting little kind of details. But, um, but, you know, but I remember when we first watched it, we were like, why isn't this working? And we looked back at scenes that we wanted to emulate, like the, maybe the scene we talked about the most was the car chase and the French connection. And if you imagine that scene, take out Gene Hackman's ridiculous facial expressions as he's driving and swerving and everything. If you take out Gene Hackman or even just see him a little less, that whole scene becomes really dull. And um, so that's kind of what dictated it. How essential do you think the short for Whiplash was to getting the feature made? And if you didn't make the short, do you think it would have been possible to make the feature at this stage in your career? Um, probably, yeah, probably not. I, the, the short wound up... The weird thing about the short is that the, you know, the short wound up kind of doing more than I even sort of thought it would in the sense that we initially made it and I thought, okay, we'll just show it to a couple investors and that will, um, that will, you know, hopefully break down the door to get one of them to give us the money to make the movie. Um, but while we were editing the short, we decided for whatever reason, I think, to, you know, try to give it a bit better platform, position it better to, to submit it to Sundance. And, uh, and so the first time I got a non something other than a rejection from Sundance was with the short. And, um, and so we took the short to Sundance and then suddenly, suddenly I remember, you know, people who had kind of not cared at all about any sort of directing aspirations I had suddenly were going, oh, 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 you want to direct, well, here's, you know, this script and this script. And suddenly the irony is that suddenly the short that had been designed purely to make whiplash suddenly was also making other things suddenly makeable. And, and, you know, and Whiplash remained for a few months this unfinanced thing that we were still kind of trying to get off the ground. And I remember sort of, you know, having to talk with the people I was working with and how, you know, representatives and stuff about how even though there were certain things that maybe looked like sure things than, than this, you know, unfinanced jazz drummer movie um, that the short was now actually allowing me to be in contention for, Whiplash, the feature, was still the, was still the thing that I had to that at the end of the day, everything else had to fall by the wayside. Um, and, you know, so it, I definitely got the feature made. It, 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 it could have, I think, gotten another feature made, probably a much worse feature made, you know, but, it, it, uh, but I'm glad it at least sort of parlayed directly into this and, and, you know, taught me, I think, a few things as well about how to shoot music and how to shoot certain things that maybe didn't work as well in the short that I was able to correct for this. Um. Yeah, in a second. I just have two questions, but I remember we showed the short in the New York Film Festival last year, and it seems to me there's a big difference between the short, and, I mean, it's a short, but, and the film, and that has to do with somehow the way the music is integrated as carrying the tempo of the film is different than it is in the feature. And I know you and I talked about this a little bit, but I think it would be interesting for people to hear about it and what Justin did and mm -hmm. you did. Uh, yeah, I mean, just to explain briefly, the short was the, for anyone who's seen the, the feature, the, it's the first, 
it's kind of like the end of the first act. It's the first extended rehearsal scene where the main character Andrew is in the studio, is in the J.K. Simmons band, and kind of gets put through the rainer. So it was about like a 15-minute chunk, um, more or less, in this single room that we shot. And what's what's ironic about what you're saying is that is that word for word in terms of the dialogue, and in many cases, shot for shot, they are exactly the same. But the um, but the 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 context kind of changed everything, and 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 also just sl- subtle differences in acting just changed everything. Miles was not in the short; uh, he's a very different Andrew than than the actor who was in the short was. Um, um, and I remember when we first when uh, so I, I, the, the the guy who I did the uh, who did the music for my first movie, Guy Madeline, um, uh, Justin Hurwitz did the music for Whiplash. I remember when we were first. Uh, first trying to figure out what the musical landscape of, of the feature would be. Um, I initially thought, you know, this was gonna be, this was gonna be a, um, that the overall tempo, musical tempo of this movie was, was a little slower and was really, it was all about mood and ominousness and it was about 70s style New York and it was about New York feeling scary and it was almost horror movie-like. And so he, we initially kind of put up temp score on the movie that was very, uh, it was kind of the opposite of what it wound up being. It was very not jazz vernacular at all, and very kind of moody. And um, there's a sequence early in the movie where Andrew, um, after the first scene, the movie walks through New York, and you kind of see the sights of New York a little bit as he walks around. That used to be scored to a kind of dirge ballad-like kind of piano uh, piano piece, and and the shots were held longer and and. Uh, and I remember in a, when we were editing it, you know, it, it, it sort of, it was, you know, not, not exactly working. And the, and it was actually, it was actually, uh, I have to, again, credit Jason Reitman, um, who came into the editing room once, and, and that was his one note. His one note was, uh, was, this seems to be working, but the, the, uh, the, 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 the musical landscape of this is completely wrong and that, and that the music of this movie is jazz and this movie moves fast and this movie is a drummer's movie and, and what are you doing? And, and I kind of took this to heart, talked to Justin and what we first did, the very first thing we did was as simple as this. We took the exact same score, temp score that we had on there, the kind of low drone, ethereal kind of dr- dirge-like thing and all we did was we put fast jazz drums over it. And we didn't do anything else at first. And we just wanted to see what that'll do. And it changed everything. And the score of the movie is essentially that. The idea of the score is it's essentially kind of a series of sort of electronic style drones, all done with acoustic instruments, but kind of long held out notes that sort of give you that queasy tension, but combined with a very fast metronomic kind of drummer just going crazy. And, um, and that just gave it a tempo, gave it a life that the... That the uh, that originally the, the movie didn't have, and that the short, which never had score, um, just had the music they played in the band, never needed. <coughs> yeah, in the back, on the edge. So, uh, toward the end of the movie, there's this one kind of violent scene. Did you play with different w- ways of how violent you wanted to show that scene? And my second question is, does Miles play the drums? Um, Miles plays the drums uh, he played since he was 15 but not jazz drums so he's you know he's a rock rock drummer you know and not formally trained just played with his friends and everything so um, 
as a former jazz drummer myself, that basically in my mind means he wasn't a drummer. So we uh, we had to uh, we had to get him up to snuff, and um, and he, you know, no, I mean, just in all seriousness, though, he had to. Uh, there were certain basic things that he had to learn um, when it came to even just how to hold the sticks properly and how to kind of how to move his arms. It was very. We spent a lot of time just working on. Because you don't actually see his legs that much. It's a great thing about the drum kit. You're hiding most of the body. So working on his upper torso and his arms, um, which is actually the same thing that they do when they try to kind of, you know, get actors to look like ballet dancers or something. They spend most of their time working the upper body. So, so once we got his arms moving the right way, and he just kind of immersed himself in videotapes of Joe Jones and Buddy Rich and, and, and big band drummers like that, then he, once he got the, 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 uh, the, the sort of curvature of the movements of the arms, it's all very sinewy and curved, then, uh, whereas rock is more straight, rock doesn't swing, um, then that kind of changed everything. And, and when it comes to the sort of violence uh, towards the end, I mean, the, the uh, I guess, yeah, it's hard to sort of talk about it too specifically without, um, I mean, th- yeah, it was it was a, it was an ongoing conversation in general. I think how to kind of approach the physicality in the movie and the blood in the movie, and um, um, it was important to me that there be. It was important to me that the audience feel the pain, um, the physical pain, um, and uh, you know, I, I there's always this kind of music versus sports sort of sort of uh, or arts versus sports um, kind of. Uh, uh, contest that sort of is, I think, you know, played out in American culture to a large degree. And um, and what's interesting about instrumental music, what's in- interesting, especially about the drums, is the physical side of it. Is the fact that is the fact that your your muscles tense up, that your that your that your at least my hands bleed, um, and that uh, and that there is this kind of physical pain that comes from. And every instrument has their own. Trumpeters have issues with their lips. Violinists screw up their backs. You know. Um, Singers screw up their their vocal cords, so everyone every instrument has its own takes its own toll on the body in a very physical sense so um, so I wanted to make sure that this movie really kind of made you live in the muck of that um, that kind of pain um, and uh, and that it really went there if for no other reason because it was a side of music and a side of the instrument that I thought hadn't been explored enough yeah I remember reading about um, Scorsese's New York New York that it was very, uh, it was hard for him to kind of plan out those musical numbers because he was doing it bar by bar in the shot list. I'm wondering if, I mean, the way you choreograph the numbers is so interesting and so great. And I'm wondering if, did you take a similar approach where you had like caravan bar by bar, shot by shot? Uh, yeah, actually, I mean, yeah, totally. It was, uh, you know, it's helpful again to have the music to start with. It gives you a kind of, as opposed to trying to map out what a car chase is going to look like, you, in a way, your score has been already figured out. So your, the length and tempo and timing of the scene has been already figured out. So, um, so when I was I storyboarded the whole movie and I, you know, those sequences I waited until we had you know, versions of pre-records for those songs, so that I could storyboard to those songs and, um, and so I just drew you know kind of relatively crude images of kind of you know basically an edit plan, a shot list, but, but really sort of storyboarded as an edit plan, storyboarded as what you would see on screen. And then, and then I just, you know, scanned those images, put them into a computer and, and, and uh, cut them up to the music. So, 
So me, the DP, the editor, the, all the crew before we shot could kind of see, could see a hand-drawn version of, of Caravan or of any of the musical numbers. And, um, and, and then from there, the AD and I kind of, you know, and DP kind of figured out, okay, well, how, you know, what order are we going to shoot in? It becomes, that becomes a whole mathematical sort of uh, nightmare. Um, when you have, you know, when you have a stage of 20 musicians, you have, you know, X number of hours, you can be there. Uh, you can only have extras in the audience for six hours, so you, ha you can't, you, you, anything pointing this way has to be done at this time, but there's, that's, that means that you have to jump ahead through all different t times, parts of the number, and then you're going to point this way, and, um, and you have to start this end of the stage first, and then move there, and then move there, so again, you're jumping through, and Miles' makeup level in the end is changing um, throughout, you know, he starts off kind of normal, by the end he's a dripping mess of sweat, and, and, um, and then you have playback, so you're, you, 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 and you have three cameras going at once. So it's, it's having to kind of make sure that the cameras don't get in each other's shots. It just becomes this, this jigsaw puzzle that you have to put together. Um, so we spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, camera A is going to be doing, you know, shot, you know, 137, while camera B does shot, you know, 241, and, you know, this can be on this trombone, and this could be here. And, um, and it's weird because it's, for a while, you feel like you're hardly making art. You feel like you're... Uh, you know, building a, a ship or something, and um, and it's just engineering. And uh, but then you get on 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 set, and you have the the actors and the musicians, and you start doing it, and you hear the music, and it's loud, and it's in the theater, and then suddenly you're looking at things on the monitor, and it's very fragmented, so you have a hard time seeing what the whole number will look like. But at least you kind of get a little bit of the feel of what it's going to be, um, and then you know they carried over into the editing. <coughs> And you did this in 19 days? Uh, yeah, that's been exact. It was 20, 20 days. Because <laughs> we had insert days. Okay. As you mentioned in the film, uh, here for a reason. So is that reason for um, fighting for success or searching for your own meaning in life? Um, the, it, it was about sort of whether, basically the, the, the question about success in the movie. Um, the reason. The reason, yeah. yeah the I mean, reason. I mean, you know, it's it was uh, it's funny because I kind of, you know, I, I I have my I grapple with you know the, those kind of issues myself in terms of what what's worth, you know, what is the price of success worth, and how do you even define what success is? Is success leading a happy, healthy life and and being a good person, or is success kind of leaving something behind for people who never knew you to appreciate? Um, and uh, there's a sort of dinner table scene in the middle of the movie that kind of was my sort of attempt to hash out sort of almost vocally that kind of argument and both sides of it. Um, I think it's clear in the diddle dinner table scene where I fall, but, uh, but, but I also wanted to make sure that the movie itself went enough to the extreme that, that it made even that decision a tough one to swallow, you know? Um, and, that, and that, you know, certainly I don't think that, that the, the extremes that are depicted in the movie are necessary for success or for to make great art or great anything. Um, but there's certain cases in any art form where you see that kind of cause and effect. You see whatever. You see a work of art that was produced by, by either people being cruel to one another, people subjugating someone else, or, 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 uh, or, or people being cruel to themselves. And um, so it's in those cases that you have to ask whether, whether you think that's okay. Can you just speak about your inner process of 
in being in the moment, making a decision about how relentless and how persistent the whatever was happening was happening. Did you base it on the truth of the moment, what was happening with the actor, or did you have a preconceived idea of where you wanted to take it? Because it just, we, we all had our heart in our throat, and it, it, it just kept going get more and more and more, so I just want you to speak to that. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember uh, there, was this there was this movie I love, the Sidney Lumet movie, it's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, um, which, he, which he made a few years ago, that um, I remember the experience of watching that movie. It was the kind of movie where, um, and I read a review that articulated this for me in a way that helped make me make sense of it, where every, not to give anything away from that movie if, if you haven't seen it, but it's the kind of movie that's structured kind of like a, a domino effect so that you start at a state of normalcy and, and then things go wrong and then they go more wrong and then you think, okay, they can't possibly go more wrong and then they go more wrong and then more wrong and then you think, well, now it's getting ridiculous and then they go more wrong. <laughs> And it, it's kind of like, it's sort of, it's kind of like when people say like something about something like Casablanca, that the cliches start talking to each other and they create something beautiful, that, that, that a movie like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead actually, to me, works past the ridiculousness into something really incredible. And, uh, but it only is because it goes, you have to cross over this, you're in the realm of logic and then you have to actually work through this area where you're no longer in logic and then you keep and then you wind up in something that's truer than than logic is and um, so I think that I, I just liked the idea of that kind of and also just viscerally the, what that movie did to me and what movies of that ilk do to me and um, so you know the script was written very much the structure was laid out in the script and then it was just on set was kind of a matter of of, of how far the actor is going to take this and um, and and it's funny because I think I always was kind of pushing them farther and farther. Maybe that's my my taste level or, or lack thereof. And and Miles uh, Miles is actually normally not an actor like that at all. He's very subtle. He's very he's the kind of actor who's totally always very scared of being false. Um, so he has a real radar, um, which is amazing and very unusual for an actor of his age. But also sometimes a radar that you have to you have to turn off sometimes. Because sometimes he'll check himself before, and then you know he would turn it off, and then he would go someplace that would surprise him. Um, so there was a constant kind of push and pull, and ultimately what wound up happening, I think the resulting performance, at least for Miles, is one that that probably goes farther than maybe he on his own would have gone, and yet grounds the movie in a way that that I on my own would not have been able to do. And um, so that's where you really ultimately you have to have a collaboration with actors who you trust, and you have to trust that ultimately their instincts are going to lead you to a better place than 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 you initially thought. Thank you, Damien. Thank, you, Thank so you all very much. Thank you. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. 
film lives here. <laughs>